Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 36, for December 21, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. During an eventful week in the Middle East, which included President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and the death of Yemen's former President Saleh, a 50-person delegation from the Washington Institute traveled to the capitals of Saudi Arabia, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates to meet with senior leaders, engage with a broad range of local society, and learn about important changes underway in each country. There is currently underway in Saudi Arabia a big, risky experiment, a gamble, um, a gamble to change the nature of the economy, to change the nature of society as a way to change the nature of the economy, and to change how leadership is determined and how power is wielded in the kingdom. That was Robert Satloff, Executive Director and Howard P. Berkowitz Chair in U.S. Middle East Policy at the Washington Institute. He led the Institute delegation to the Gulf and spoke at a December 18 forum at the Institute in Washington, D.C. He was joined at the podium by Catherine Bauer, a former Treasury Department official who's now the Blumenstein Katz Family Fellow at the Institute and who also participated in the trip. We'll hear from Rob and Kate about their encounters with leaders and citizens across the Gulf at this moment of regional turmoil and domestic change after this. This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. First, we'll hear from Robert Sadloff. This was a um, an unusual trip that uh, that we took in the sense that it was um, a large delegation. Um, there were 55 of us, um, all told, who uh, traveled um, from Riyadh to Muscat to um, Abu Dhabi. Um, uh, this itinerary planned uh, quite a long time ago was meant to reflect um, uh, uh, change that is going on in a very small area when you think about it. Um, three very different countries, um, uh, each uh, um, uh, uh, undergoing their own um, uh, 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 internal change, especially visible in terms of the transformation that is underway in Saudi Arabia, but it is not alone in, in having a, a process of domestic change, each of whom is, um, uh, is, uh, is governed uh, by the geography in which they sit that has a powerful determining, determining factor for their um, regional strategy and foreign policy. Um, um, uh, I'll say mostly some words about uh, Saudi Arabia, but just um, um, uh, uh, a word about um, Oman. Um, I won't say much about Oman in the sense that uh, we unfortunately were there over a weekend, um, but we did have the opportunity to meet a wide variety of Omani officials and to see um, in a very physical and upfront sense the the uniqueness and the the, the structural um, uh, differentiation between Oman and, say, Riyadh from uh, Saudi Arabia, from which we came, uh, where you sit uh, determines where you stand. Um, um, and uh, the Omani foreign policy, which is um, uh, starkingly different than uh, the foreign policy of its neighbors, um, was quite evident from uh, from conversations with senior officials and their openness to all regional partners uh, and their middleman role uh, with the uh, with the Iranians. And we can get into that um, uh, into that a la- little later on. 
Um, just uh, one final preparatory word in case anyone is wondering. Um, this trip was uh, um, uh, totally financed and supported by the Washington Institute, uh, other than uh, a few delight- delicious meals um, that uh, were provided. Um, uh, this was uh, this was an, uh, on our dime, our real, uh, our dinar, not uh, not any uh, local um, uh, officials. Um, and the purpose of the trip was really uh, to, defi- to decide for ourselves, um, us specialists and the lay leaders of the Washington Institute, how real and how serious are the prospects of change in these countries, um, um, how real and serious and um, carefully uh, considered is the regional strategy pursued by these capitals, and for us to decide for ourselves whether what I'll call the Obama critique, namely that this is a swamp in which the United States um, should stay out, from which the United States should just stay out, um, uh, um, or alternatively, is this a part of the world where we should be deeply engaged um, in order to assist the parties for their own benefit and for our national interests, which one of these um, uh, basic uh, decisions is right? And um, uh, I'll say more about that uh, a little bit later on. Um, so let me make um, some comments about Saudi Arabia. Um, when uh, uh, when we arrived in Riyadh um, uh, on our opening night, um, I, um, I reminded our group that uh, uh, traditionally Saudi Arabia is based on three pillars, sort of family, God, and oil. And you can make your own determination of which is more important than the other. Um, uh, and that to keep family together, traditionally, um, the Saudi leadership has had a strategy based on the division of power among various branches of the family, rotation of leadership among the various branches of the family, and spreading of wealth among the various branches of the family. So if you were... Um, uh, to flash forward and think about where Saudi Arabia is today, um, um, all these three pillars have are, are being rethought and reconsidered. So uh, in the Saudi worldview since 1979, um, the year in which um, two um, uh, uh, sort of catastrophic events occurred, one being the Mecca mosque takeover and the other being the Iranian revolution, um, this triggered um, enormous change within the kingdom um, uh, uh, in terms of the, say, the God pillar. Um, and it led um, uh, Saudi institutions, religious institutions, um, uh, down a path of extremism, uh, which has now caught up with them. And um, the leadership uh, clearly recognizes that. Um, secondly, um, the money pillar, the wealth pillar, the perception is that uh, um, uh, this is running out, certainly running out in the manner of spending that has historically been the case. And the third pillar is that to, to fix these first two problems um, of religious extremism and of, uh, of, uh, um, uh, of an economy that doesn't produce what the country needs, you can't keep the family together in the same manner that it has been kept together in the past. And so therefore, there is currently underway in Saudi Arabia a big, risky experiment, a gamble, um, a gamble to change 
the nature of the economy, to change the nature of society as a way to change the nature of the economy, and to change how leadership is determined and how power is wielded in the kingdom. Um, this is a, a modernizing experiment. Uh, the record, of course, of modernizing um, from the top down in the Middle East is mixed at best. If one were to look at the record of uh, uh, ranging from uh, Ataturk in Turkey uh, to Bourguiba in Tunisia to the Shah of Iran, um, the record is, shall we say, mixed. Um, um, but that is the path in which the leadership is taking. Um, uh, uh, dramatic transformation from the top down. Uh, it's important to say that this is not about democracy. Um, this is not about uh, liberalism in the traditional sense. It's about how to, in my view, it's about how to rescue the Saudi kingdom from, um, uh, from the realities of, uh, of the limits that it now faces, the limits of its, uh, of its experience with um, Islamic institutions in the last quarter century, the limits of its reliance on uh, traditional sources of revenue, and the limits of this, um, the method of uh, leadership, um, diffuse leadership among the branches of the family that may have brought it so far, but uh, according to the current leadership, doesn't seem to be the path for the future. Um, so the basic strategy, after meeting with a broad range of government officials and private entrepreneurs and young students and high-level um, uh, senior leaders, the basic strategy seems to me, and I believe this reflects the view of my colleagues, is to make haste slowly, methodically, but to make haste. Uh, incremental but real change in the role women play in society, in the concept of work, um, in the elements of the economy, and in how leadership is apportioned within the ruling family. We saw this with the various people that we met. Uh, there's a huge injection of enthusiasm for change that appears to be coming from the hundreds of thousands of alumni of American universities, um, King Abdullah having given scholarships to up to 100,000 per year to come to the United States. Well, a large majority of them are coming back, and uh, they're not looking forward to taking the old roles that their parents and grandparents had in society. Young people who are taking their American degrees and putting them to work as entrepreneurs, professors in universities, taking jobs and new careers. I remember um, uh, at one fancy restaurant we were at one night, we met the head chef, a woman who um, uh, was the head chef over a staff of, of all men. I sat one evening next to a young woman, PhD in computer science, who was the dean of a local of a new university, or a young guy who gave up his uh, government job to open his own Italian bakery selling cannolis of all things. Um, you know, half an hour into a conversation, you can begin to ask some very uh, sensitive questions, and the one thing I came away from from all these interactions with, um, uh, especially people outside government is that they were banking on change and they didn't want some foreign adventure, some foreign entanglement, someone else's issue to derail that process. I think many of our group were particularly impressed by what senior leaders said about, um, shall we say, moderate Islam, uh, rethinking traditional views of how Islam is interpreted, mandated, and executed. Uh, the basic idea um, for a rationale for this change 
is um, uh, uh, to go back to the model of the prophet and his immediate circle. Were men and women separated in the seventh century? No. Um, did women work then? Of course. The prophet, after all, married um, an older woman who was a successful entrepreneur. Um, and that model of a successful woman entrepreneur is something that Saudis are now pointing to. Um, uh, uh, I, when we met um, uh, uh, the crown prince, um, uh, he was joined by a handful of uh, of uh, senior Saudi leaders, and you know most of them made sense to me: the Minister of Interior, Minister of Planning, National Security Advisor. Um, uh, but then, sitting just two seats over, was the head of the National Entertainment Authority. And at the time, I was wondering why is the head of the National Entertainment Authority and this platform with all these national security figures? The Crown Prince actually didn't have time in his remarks to us to explain why this gentleman was sitting two seats away from him. But two days later, of course, we learned that uh, he was there because Saudi Arabia was about to open movie theaters um, to uh, um, to women. Um, uh, all part of this incremental but in the Saudi context, very significant uh, move toward uh, integrating women fully in uh, the social fabric of the country in a public sense. Um, we saw, um, uh, I saw a hint of this um, in a fascinating exchange we had with the head of the, uh, the Muslim World League um, uh, um, uh, when, uh, when we asked about uh, non, um, non-Muslim prayer in Saudi Arabia and when that might be allowed. Um, the answer, in fact, was not that it is forbidden in Islam, which was the answer I expected him to say. Rather, he um, he mentioned that um, uh, the current rulers are following the practice of previous rulers of uh, on this territory, uh, implying to my ears that uh, the uh, the ban on non-Muslim prayer was um, was a tradition, not a uh, an immutable. Um, uh, uh, aspect of, uh, of Islamic law. Um, uh, I found that very interesting. I also found interesting on this front numbers that we heard, very specific numbers from very high leaders in the country, namely 70% of personnel in religious institutions were by Saudi accounts extremists up to just two years ago. Um, that uh, purges um, uh, have taken place and that number is now down to 20% with a goal of 5% three years from now. now. We can take these numbers for what they say, but the idea um, that um, uh, at very high levels of government would uh, um, uh, um, would offer such numbers, to my ears, was a, um, a stark admission of uh, responsibility for religious extremism and uh, certainly a commitment to, um, to change. My overall sense was that on domestic matters, the regime has a clear sense of where they want to go and how to get there. It won't be easy, of course, and it may fail. If you're under 35 or 40, you're a winner in this change and you support it. If you're over 50, you're probably a loser and chances are likely that you oppose it. There are lots of potential losers in this change. A senior minister said to us, that um, the Saudis now estimate that for many years, 8 to 10% of the Saudi national budget has been siphoned off for corruption. You can do the numbers. The 2017 budget was 890 billion rials, about 240 or so billion dollars. Do the math. That's a lot of money. 
Uh, many of them are in the royal family and in the immediate circles surrounding it um, to cut out that level of corruption, if indeed that is the case, uh, is certainly going to be a, um, a fraught process, fraught with danger for uh, the people who are the benefits of corruption and fraught for those who are trying to root it out, if indeed that's the case. At the same time, the Saudi leadership sees foreign threats and challenges all around, with the most urgent and threatening coming from Iran, its allies, friends, and proxies. Uh, the threats, in my view, are indeed real. Uh, it's unclear to me that they have the same clarity of strategy in confronting the external threats as they do in their efforts to promote internal reform. Uh, on Yemen, uh, Saudi Arabia has been on the receiving end of dozens of missiles that have killed large numbers. Um, when a very senior leader said to us, quote, uh, imagine what America would do if Cuba launched missiles into Miami. You guys would drop the A-bomb. I could have closed my ears and heard leaders of another country um, not too far away um, uh, that regularly has missiles dropped on them um, offering exactly the same um, uh, response. Um, how to deal with Yemen remains a challenge. We were in Riyadh um, right during the crazy days of when uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh changed uh, political tack and then was subsequently killed. I can't say I have a clear idea of exactly where Saudi Arabia and its allies are going. I can say that they are very sensitive to charges of the purposeful targeting of civilians. We were um, uh, given the opportunity to visit, invited to visit the Air Operations Command. Uh, they brought us into the room where you could see dozens of Saudi air controllers offering real-time instructions to pilots flying over Yemen. And there, behind a plate glass window, waving at us, were American and British air liaison officers. Um, I tell you, from my perspective, the visit worked. It's tough to imagine those American and British officers playing a role in the purposeful and deliberate bombing of civilians. Does it happen by error, by incompetence? Absolutely. Does this account uh, answer questions about the delivery of humanitarian goods? No. But on this question, unless you believe the U.S. Air Force is in cahoots in the purposeful targeting of civilians, the answer, at least as of today, in my view, is no. Strategically, we didn't hear a lot of answers to the famous David Petraeus question, how does this end? Namely, how does the Qatar crisis end? Though we heard an earful about the duplicity of the Qataris. Um, we didn't hear how the Lebanese crisis ends. Though we heard a lot about uh, the Hizb shaitan the, the party of the devil, which is the Saudis' preferred name for Hezbollah. And a lot of warnings that the upcoming Lebanese election um, uh, um, should be stopped because it is about to uh, um, per permanently empower um, Hezbollah, um, who is likely to have constitutional change um, and dramatically change the, uh, the political makeup of that country. Um, we did hear a more upbeat portrayal of the situation in Iraq than I had imagined, namely that the current Iraqi government, with the strong support of Riyadh, is pushing back on Iranian influence there. Seems optimistic to me but very interesting. In all of this, there was only one operational request we heard of the United States. Yes, they would like to see tougher U.S. measures to stop weapons, weapons smuggling into Yemen. They'd like to see the U.S. take Hezbollah down a notch to help Abadi in Iraq. Yes. But the one ask, the only ask we heard, was regarding 
East Syria, namely a specific request that the U.S. maintain its deployment in eastern Syria as the essential element in blocking the Iranian land bridge and in helping to contain Iran's spreading influence in that area. As for Iran's strategy itself, the basic idea, as enunciated by a senior Saudi leader, was containment. Push back Iranian influence, bottle them up, until such time as the Iranian people bring about the change that will eventually come. If we don't assertively contain them now, we were told, military confrontation becomes inevitable before long. Um, I have written elsewhere on Israel, the peace process in Jerusalem. I won't repeat everything I've written elsewhere here. Suffice to say, we were there on the day of and the day after the president's announcement on Jerusalem as Israel's capital. If we didn't raise the issue with our interlocutors, I'm not at all sure it would have been raised by them. And when we did raise it, their response was measured and moderate, put in the context of larger U.S.-Saudi relations, larger U.S.-Saudi efforts to build Israeli-Palestinian peace, to which the Saudis were committed. I'm sure that um, the Saudi leadership, um, if they had had um, a great consternation, great frustration, great anger, would have found a way to express that to us. Um, uh, instead, I believe that they made a purposeful effort to express their views to us in the manner that they did. So that's the story. Real dynamism on the domestic front with a clear sense of direction. Deep frustration and fear on the foreign front with a willingness to act that is unusual in uh, looking at, um, you know, Saudi history but some, with somewhat less clarity of purpose or design. In my view, we, the United States, can play a very useful role by helping them with the latter while playing a supportive and encouraging um, role and providing an encouraging environment for the former. In other words, in broad strokes, we should want the reform process to succeed and we should do our best with the Saudis in order to build on our common desire um, regarding the regional strategy and to help them refine that strategy to make it more effective, more targeted, uh, clearer with uh, specific achievements um, and working in closer concert with its partners, especially here in Washington. That was Robert Satloff. Next, we'll hear from Catherine Bauer. So we arrived in the UAE, um, picking up from from where Rob left off, uh, energized by this dynamism that we experienced in Saudi and rested from our weekend in Oman. The UAE was an important stop for us to make on this trip because it no doubt serves as a model uh, in the region for because of its diversified economy um, and its commitment to tolerance and moderation. It's also an important U.S. ally, a key partner uh, on counterterrorism, um, a key ally in the counter-ISIL fight, and an important um, relationship in terms of the military-to-military -military relationship. Also, of course, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are close partners. Uh, in contrast to our stop in Riyadh, what we heard from officials in the UAE focused primarily on foreign policy and the regional dynamics, um, no shortage of which were, were related to Saudi Arabia and the reform agenda there within and, and how it, uh, how it proceeded. Considering the focus in recent years on the UAE's ability to protect, project power militarily, we've heard a lot about the little Sparta, 
the UAE being uh, fighting alongside the U.S. in Afghanistan, being a partner in the counter-ISIL coalition, as I mentioned, and in the Saudi coalition in Yemen. Uh, what we heard, at least what I heard more in our meetings with UAE officials, uh, related to soft power. Uh, one of the overarching themes was uh, the fight to counter extremism and also uh, the need to emphasize development and governance in other countries in the region. So what I came away with uh, was actually what I felt was a rather cohesive view from the Emirati perspective of the region and of the regional strategy. How it was laid out was citing two primary threats that they face, Iran in terms of its support for proxies and missile proliferation and Islamist extremism. So I wanted to, to talk about those two um, separately. On Iran, it was no surprise uh, that Yemen figured very central in our conversations, uh, given that the threat that is posed by Iranian support to the Houthis, but we did also discuss Iranian proxies more broadly in the region and the threat from the proliferation of missiles. Our interlocutors uh, were, were very easily made comparisons between the Houthis in Yemen and Hezbollah in, um, in Lebanon, even to the extent uh, that they cited lessons learned from the Israeli experiences there, talking about how the Israeli withdrawal had left a vacuum that was filled by Yemen and extrapolating that, uh, that their uh, presence in Yemen um, was, was forestalling a similar, similar consequences there if the power vacuum was allowed to persist. They expressed a commitment to finding a political uh, solution in Yemen, but also a wariness of working with Islamist parties, which perhaps has been overcome in part uh, based on the news this weekend that uh, MBZ and MBS as well, Mohammed bin, bin Zayed and Mohammed bin Salman, met with the leader of the Yemeni Islam Party, which at least was previously affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. I was left with the impression uh, that their view of containing Iran meant confronting them in Yemen primarily and domestically, or where they saw Iran interfering in the domestic, domestic politics or, or domestic affairs of, of regional Sunni Arab countries. So whereas the view from Washington, I feel, is focused um, on the Levant, um, but perhaps we see some signs of the influence of this view on the Trump administration strategy and a focus there in the October speech on um, countering Iran in Yemen. But as, as Rob said, when the Levant was raised, uh, the, 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 to what extent, um, what sense of ending was not exactly articulated. So on the, on Iran's intervention in, or interference in domestic politics in regional countries, their interlocutors emphasize the role of economic development and counter extremism to shore up the defenses against Iranian influence, especially in Iraq and Saudi Arabia. They acknowledge that they were perhaps too slow to engage Iraq post Saddam and echo the Saudi commitments to supporting economic development there, um, not through assistance, but through investment. On Islamist extremism, I found the UAE notably less shy uh, about how it views its role in promoting tolerance and moderation in the region. Um, I also felt like I heard uh, more acknowledgement of the role of ideology and religious doctrine in extremism in the region, and this was something that was also uh, that I found in Saudi Arabia. But where I would say was kind of the bumper sticker moment for me in the meetings that we had from the UAE, the, the phrase that I felt like summed up um, this, this cohesive regional strategy 
was when one official said to us that uh, that they they ground their counter extremism policies or efforts in two anchors in Saudi Arabia and in Egypt, and that in order to be credible, they need to fly those two flags. And that's because Saudi Arabia being the birthplace of Islam and Egypt because it houses Al-Azhar as one of the, the preeminent places for um, training of, of religious scholars in the region. And I saw from this uh, much of the UAE's foreign policy in recent years flowing. If you can see the UAE's uh, strong support for the, the Morsi government in Egypt and or I'm sorry, the Sisi government in Egypt and uh, their involvement, uh, their support for Saudi Arabia, but also a view that uh, that what part of what they're doing in Yemen is uh, to 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 help Saudi Arabia and prevent the Yemen conflict from destabilizing Saudi Arabia so that the reform agenda can be pursued and counter extremism and our more moderate uh, Islam uh, pursued, as has been mentioned by Mohammed bin Salman. Likewise, um, regarding President Trump's announcement on Jerusalem, um, MBZ, as he was quoted actually in local press as well from our meeting, um, his comments on the president's statement were that it could be a rallying cry for extremists. So the focus here was was on that and not on other aspects um, of, of that decision. But also uh, our interlocutors noted that they welcome efforts, U.S. efforts to reinvigorate the peace process and uh, looked forward to a time when peace had been achieved and you would see Israeli flags flying in every Arab capital. So again, what struck me was the cohesiveness of this foreign policy view and the the kind of theme of counter-extremism that, that flowed through it. For example, the Iran threat to Yemen is a threat to Saudi, which undermines these reforms. And likewise, in Iraq. One final point I wanted to make, um, as I said, most of our meetings with officials focused on uh, foreign policy, but I had the opportunity to, to stay behind and, and, and do some side meetings with, uh, with members of the commercial sector and financial sector in Dubai. And I think one thing worth noting is that there is a sense that this is an uncertain time in the region. The confidence, of course, that we hear in official meetings, um, acknowledgement that this is going to be a long, hard fight. But in the commercial sectors, there's a sense of the uncertainty. And while the Qatar crisis didn't receive considerable attention in our meetings, um, it did amongst the, the folks that I talked to in Dubai. And I think this, this view that, that the GCC is not just a political entity, but also a common market that has common standards. And that fear of the dissolution of these brings uncertainty to those working in Dubai and to the model of Dubai as a platform um, the value proposition that you can work in Dubai um, across the region. I also heard anecdotally stories of rising nationalism both on both sides of the Qatar crisis, which left those in the commercial sector with the sense that this was an entrenched conflict that had uh, that would not be resolved um, anytime soon. There was also concern about the assertiveness of Saudi foreign policy, the ongoing expenses incurred through the conflicts in Yemen, as well as the um, the efforts, the counter, uh, the anti-corruption efforts in Saudi Arabia, and and where that, how that might deter investment from the GCC outside of the GCC. 
So I don't want to over, overstate that because the UAE as a small country and Dubai in particular as a regional financial center does well as long as the regional economy does well and as well, as long as the global economy does well. As a small country, the UAE is clearly pursuing a policy of promoting stability in an unstable reason, region. It recognizes that these are long fights, the fights against extremism and countering Iran. And while they're willing to take on these fights, as we heard, they also articulated the need to press upon allies the importance of allies' support for stability in the key countries that they've identified in their, in their regional strategy. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.